you're listening to the hybrid cloud forecast series with host andre tost all right welcome everyone thanks for listening to today's uh episode of the Hybrid Cloud Forecast podcast. Today's guest is a very old special friend of mine, uh, Rachel Reinitz. She is the uh, founder and fearless leader of something called the IBM Garage, and we'll hear all about what that is and how it got to that. Thanks for being here, Rachel. Oh, thanks a lot, Andre. It's always good to talk to you. So let's start like we always do with introductions. So maybe tell us a bit about your your background, your history with IBM, how you got to be what you are today, and then maybe getting into a bit more about what is your job, what, what are you doing at IBM right now? Oh, I'd love to. I have a long career with IBM. I started right out of school. I held a variety of jobs. I will mention I actually do not have a computer science degree. So I kind of found my way to become more and more technical. And after a few years, got into the consulting side of IBM and then consulting really on our products, really driving product adoption. And I had the good fortune to have a mentor who helped guide me towards really working on emerging technology, which is where I got to meet you, Andre. And we did some very uh, leading edge, sometimes it was bleeding edge work with some of our new technologies. And it was super fun. That was actually decades ago, right? I mean, I hate to say it, but that was a long time ago. It was decades ago. And I think even before I met you, I did the first Java Servlet project. I did the first XML project. And then fast forward, I think some of our work was some of the uh, early SOA service-oriented architecture days and enterprise service bus. And it was really fun. I I love taking new technologies and really proving them out with clients. And it's not just proving it out. It's really taking that feedback, that experience and improving the products and developing uh, IBM's capability to deliver services around those products. And now in my current role, I'm actually bringing the same kind of approach to to pre-sales, where we really have a much bigger focus on helping our clients to adopt and ensuring that they get value. And that's all led to the variety of experiences, I would say, plus the fact that I live in Silicon Valley. So I have a lot of exposure to startups and in fact, I left IBM for a couple of years and worked for a startup that you know kind of all came together in 2014 when I had the opportunity to start a new kind of innovative consulting organization within IBM that got named the IBM Garage. And I think we'll probably talk more about that. And with the work I did there, and it really was started really small in San Francisco and now expands to tens of thousands of consultants in IBM applying our methodology and driving results. You know, I got appointed an IBM fellow, which is nice. <laughs> it sure is. Indeed, we want to get back to that topic. I want to talk a lot more about the garage and what you guys do. Before we do that, one thing I wanted to get out of the way, because that's how we always run these episodes and talk about your definition of hybrid cloud. And I always start out by saying, if someone were to ask you in an elevator, what is the hybrid cloud and what would your answer be? To me, hybrid cloud is the reality for almost all clients and certainly all enterprise clients that they will utilize and get benefit from cloud capability from multiple cloud providers. And most often also including on-premise capability that they want to make available as part of their cloud. So I take a very kind of broad definition. To me, I always think about 
cloud and hybrid cloud is what are the the benefits that you're trying to drive in terms of really having resources, IT resources available in a very on-demand way, in a rapid kind of way that there's an ability to flex the amount of resource that, that is applied for different applications, different types of work. So to me, hybrid cloud is really the the reality of using a lot of different cloud capabilities. I wouldn't say just reality in a negative way, but in a positive way that you know, you have SaaS services out there, you have on-premise capability that you may have now hopefully be setting up, you know, Kubernetes kind of capability on-premise. And of course, you have, you know, the hyperscaler types of capability, both for IaaS and for platform as a service, as well as SaaS. Okay. And that's been kind of a common theme, you know, throughout the, the conversations that I've had on this is that the first thought is always about location. You know, when we say hybrid cloud, where does it run? And the answer is it can run in all kinds of places. It can run in all kinds of public clouds or on-prem, even going out to the edge. We've had a separate discussion on that. And then we go into, okay, but now how do I take advantage of this? Or, or how do I put that to good use? How do I create solutions for it. And I think that's going to slowly get us into what does the garage do, right? So if if you have customers connecting with you and saying, I, I live in this hybrid cloud world, and I need to adopt the style in, in which I'm creating applications and I'm running my IT, then then what, what does that mean? So how does that that notion of being in all kinds of places, how does that influence how I create solutions and then operate and manage them. I think that, you know, fundamentally it opens options. It it opens up the option to, you know, build versus buy. It opens up the option, especially when you think about edge types of computing, of really bringing, you know, computing into the home, onto the shop floor in, in a variety of ways. And I'd say at the very heart of it is the idea of patterns, So patterns in terms of how you deploy and what capabilities you use where. And I think that that gets specific to an industry and then specific to a client based on what they have. But I also think that there's, you know, there's common kinds of patterns that we see in terms of setting up data fabrics, for example, in terms of security and where you place the different security in terms of federated API management. I think that there are some industry types of patterns uh, IT industry and then industry specific as well. If you think about applying visual inspection on the shop floor, those kinds of things. I think that key for clients is to figure out what are the patterns that work for them to be a, architecturally that then allow the teams that want to get work done to do that rapidly and leverage those patterns and and ideally accelerators and, and things like that to now develop and really not have to think through the details of deployment for every single type of application that there's kind of like, hey, this is kind of how we do it. You always have to have room for those things that maybe don't fit an existing pattern. Yeah. And when I think pattern, I'm thinking repeatability and automation, right? Uh, one thing that came up in an early episode that we did a, uh, an episode with Tamar, uh, who you know, I'm sure. And she said, cloud really became cloud to me when we added automation. Until then, it was just the server sits somewhere else. But once we added this notion of automation, it became cloud, right? 
And I think that ties right into what you were just saying. Patterns and repeatability allow automation and that allows, you know, quicker deployment times, quicker time to market and those kinds of things. I agree. I also think that there's the negative to cloud, especially wider use of multi-clouds, right? Which is management. You know, it is fundamentally more moving parts than when you have the big monolith. And you have to, you, you also have to weigh that. And, and this goes back to, you know, Andre, we have much experience in granularity. This, this exists in all different areas. We have this in service oriented architecture. We have it in APIs. And now we have it in all the different cloud services that can make up an overall application. It's fundamentally, it's a lot of moving parts. So you have to, be disciplined and apply, I also think, cloud management and operations to your cloud. I completely agree. Granularity, in fact, is a topic that even just this week, I've had some discussions on where it goes into. We're promoting microservices as a way to structure an application, right? But then the question becomes, how many of them can you have? And, you know, when do you go overboard with, uh, you know, having too many of them and being too fine-grained? Because then that translates into more moving parts, and then you kind of lose the benefit. On the other side, I remember times when we did SOA, where we became too coarse-grained, right? It became, it was wasn't meaningful anymore because it couldn't be mapped to concrete IT components very easily. And so I think there is a balancing act in granularity. That's that's a very interesting uh, aspect of it. I think that the key is actually goes back to a bit of what you had said, automation. I, I think it's I think the key is actually the the life cycle, the ownership, the automation that goes around a component or a container, whatever it is, right? And when you're thinking about what what should be in a container or in a cluster is what you're trying to do is to enable an organizational entity like a team to have ownership over that module granularity, whatever it may be, so that they can make changes to it without having to involve a lot of other people, check with a lot of people, and that it's a granularity that makes sense for the level of automation you're doing. We had one customer who you know, was doing all these microservices, but had a single DevOps pipeline that was servicing all of them. And it's like, you're really kind of missing a key element here of the independence that you want to have. That's really what you're you're striving for is this independence. But at the same time, you don't want it so fine grained that it becomes incredibly difficult to operate and manage. And of course, the other element of looking at is the yeah, so resource utilization, because if you become too coarse grained, you may not be getting the benefits of being able to optimize the, the resources and just, you know, instantiate how much uh, resource you need for a specific component. You call it independence. I call it autonomy, right? That's even better. uh, The point of having a microservice is that it can be autonomous. But if all the microservices can only ever be viewed as a single block, then I'm kind of losing. Then I've lost the point, right? Then I make my life more difficult than it needs to be and get no benefit from it. I'd like to kind of switch the the conversation a little bit towards the garage. We we, we promised we were going to get to that. And before we even go into methodology process how does the how does the garage create hybrid cloud solutions talk a bit about what what is a garage i mean i've been to a few and and you know just in full disclosure you know ibmers love to go to the garages because they're usually in some cool hip place of town and they have good coffee and 
they're just fun to work at, right? So, uh, and you like you said, start out in San Francisco. We now have them in many cities. I don't know how many, but uh, talk a bit about how that how that gets built up. The garage started in 2017. It was right when we were coming out with our new platform as a service, Bluemix, which was a real change. It was also, I would say, when cloud adoption was really starting to shift to an idea of innovation. And I did the earliest projects on what was to become Bluemix. And a wonderful leader, Steve Robinson, became the head of Bluemix, who I'd worked for before. And he kind of said to me, he's like, Rachel, how can we help our clients to adopt Bluemix in maybe a new way? And I drew on my experiences living in Silicon Valley, where you're constantly exposed to the startup world. You know, you go to brunch and you hear about the latest and greatest, you know, cab application and experiences in agile. I've done a lot of work with extreme programming. I was also working with Pivotal Labs at that time as they they were sort of owner controller of, of Cloud Foundry, which was the basis for Bluemix. And I, of course, had development background and... Additionally, inside of IBM, we were adopting design thinking. And so I pulled these elements together. So from design thinking came the idea of really focusing on end user experience and delivering delightful experiences, because that has become more and more what you need to do. And from lean, it became what is the minimal viable product that we could build. And MVP is really focused on what are the risk areas? What are the hypotheses in our big idea that we need to prove out to have confidence to continue to invest? So now we had the lean side of things of like, what should we build? And the design thinking side that said, we're going to build something that's going to have a great experience. And also from design thinking is where does whatever it's that we're going to develop fit within the, the target end user sort of life or life cycle. So it's um, not always a UI. It can be also like an analytics or something like that. So now kind of have like, all right, what am I going to build? How does it kind of look? And then you get to how am I going to build it? And this is where the true agile part comes in as well as, you know, DevOps and automation, which from agile, what you want to do is build again, for those end users with the people who know it. So with the business, sometimes when it's an IT project, the business of IT. So you want that partnership with the business. You want to have a product owner who is driving what you're producing. And we went with the more extreme flavor of Agile, which says you don't plan out all of what you're going to build or even in two-week sprints. You go along through a Kanban board iteratively to look at, what should I build now? Building user stories end to end. So, you know, you want to get things that are working as quickly as possible, which will allow you to get to production and proving out your hypothesis as quickly as possible. And the way that you get that quickness is applying a great set of agile practices of test-driven development, pair programming, refactoring, stand-ups, you know, communication. We want to have diverse squads with different kinds of skills that you need so you don't have a lot of dependencies on those external. And then, of course, bringing in the technology of automation, DevOps, and doing it on cloud. So the doing it on cloud part that's super important is getting the resources that you need, including cloud services that now I can say, oh, I need a database 
I get a database. I need messages coming in as if it's a phone. I'll use Twilio. You know, the pulling in of these different kinds of services, these all combined allow you to go really fast. And so the foundation and underlying of the garage, both the, the entity and the methodology, is to deliver at speed on ideas that matter and test them out. And then organizationally and physically, what happened was we started in San Francisco with one garage. Steve had the brilliant idea of really being in startup communities that would allow us to tap into the startup thinking and the kind of energy and, you know, the collaboration that you get there. And also the physicality of being in these communities really lets you get out of your box. You know, we had visitors come to the San Francisco garage and then other garages and they look around and always their first question would be like, is this IBM? And it was a great way to really drive home a different IBM. It helped us on recruiting. It helped the people who came in to workshop with us and work with us to really open up their minds, you know, when you're in these uh, kind of raw buildings and, and all of that. So that was the foundation of the garage. And it grew quickly to other locations. We drove a bunch of success for Bluemix adoption and references. And in 2018, at the same time, IBM Consulting was really building up uh, innovation capability and focusing a lot on how do you work with the business to take big ideas and test them out? And how do you put a systemic way of evaluating ideas, again, trying them out in the small, deciding to invest more, you know, a whole kind of value framework. And we decided to bring that together with what we were doing, which was very MVP focused, the proving out part of it, and also with other capability in IBM Consulting that was about scale, the technical scale that you need to do, the scaling of what you're producing out into the market or into, uh, if it's employee app, into the organization. So we really brought that all together for the sort of second generation of the IBM Garage methodology. So we had actually published the original methodology in 2015. We refreshed it significantly in 2019. The same time, we trained a lot of IBMers. We've expanded across IBM. So today, IBM Garage is an approach that's used across IBM by many IBM organizations that implements the IBM Garage methodology, which continues to expand and adapt based on a lot of you know, different experiences that we're having. And then this year, in the beginning of 2020, 2021, we established a new garage organization called Client Engineering, which is part of our pre-sales organization. It really focused on bringing hands-on experience co-creation to our clients around the use of our technology. So where there's a match with our technology filling a need, a big idea, we work with the clients to prove that out. We also work on just getting them on a good path to adoption. And that's the organization that I've been building in America this year. 
I was going to say, as it is for many companies right now, trying to figure out, are we going to go back to normal or is there a permanent shift in how we work and how we do things? Let me play back a couple of the things that you mentioned that, that I want to reemphasize. So you said something about cloud started to be started out to be about cost and then it shifted to be about innovation. I, I think that's an important aspect. And I, I think I've seen that everywhere I go as well, and that it started out by saying, how can we run things cheaper? And that's obviously always still an underpinning idea and, and goal for, for sure. But now it's more about how do we build new things? How do we build them as quickly as possible and, and get, get maximum value out of them? And that's where innovation comes into play. And that leads right to hybrid cloud. Now, what I've observed, and I haven't been in a garage in a while for obvious reasons, but what I've observed and what I was part of is that you mentioned design thinking as to be the approach. And in a nutshell, it means like people come together at first and start talking about the experiences they are trying to achieve. And you do that in a room where the, that has no chairs, where people are just kind of standing around and randomly writing things on the wall, literally, or, or putting sticky notes on the wall. And then that gets sorted. And that's how you start forming ideas and, and scenarios. This is long before you start writing code. How can that be done if you're not in the same room together and doing this really collaborative type of thing where people have no distractions and don't have to do half of their job you know, on the side? I'm going to expand your definition of design thinking because to me, design thinking at the very core is about looking at things from an end user perspective. So to me, one of the most important aspects of design thinking is empathy. And, and personally, I feel like getting trained on design thinking and having applied it over the years has fundamentally changed how I relate to certainly work people. Maybe, maybe it's helped in my personal life too, to where I try and take that point of view as to, you know, where are the other people coming from? Like we often, as we're in, you know, working with clients, we'll actually look to empathize and understand the client ahead of time. In terms of what does it mean to do that, there are these great aspects of you want people to be quiet, kind of silent, put up their their post-its so everyone has a say, you know, those kinds of things. When we do that virtually, the, the tool of choice by far is Mural, and we're able to share Mural with our clients, and it creates basically a virtual whiteboard with post-its, et cetera. Now, there are some advantages of doing things in Mural versus doing it in person. If you choose, you can make it anonymous who's putting up what. I mean, you can't, you can see, you can choose as a facilitator whether the names are there or not. And that can be really helpful because sometimes when we do design thinking, everyone's looking at the boss, you know, and we always tell the quote boss to go last because they'll want to follow him or her. And now it becomes, I think, even more democratized when you're virtual in a way, right? And at the same time, it can be a little bit harder because especially if you anonymize it, you don't know if people are fully engaged, if they're there, those distractions are more when you're doing it virtual. Again, there's there's things we try to adapt to. The thing that is easier virtual is to get people who are geographically separated to participate. And it's easier to get maybe the expert that you need for one specific exercise, say we're looking at security or something. It's easier to get them involved. It's easier from an IBM standpoint to be able to pull in our different experts. Because and this is true for design thinking and for architecture workshops too. Architecture workshops to me are the hardest thing to do virtual because 
the there's a physicality, there's a communication of using an actual whiteboard of, you know, even sometimes grabbing the marker from from somebody else that is I, I that one is very hard to replicate. I think, you know, we do our best. We use mural some of the time, we'll use other drawing tools. That's probably the hardest one to replicate. Well, I would echo that. I miss whiteboard discussions, you know, where you draw on top of each other and so forth. Heated debates. I, I mean, maybe it's just me. I find it really hard to draw things with my mouse pad, you know. Yeah. I, I'm terrible at it and it looks funny. And, and so I, I miss it. I'm hoping that that part of it will come back at some point in the future. We'll see. Now, another question I wanted to ask you is, you, you, so you said, you know, it's been expanding tens of thousands of people involved using your methodology and so forth, getting business included. How do you maintain that startup mindset that you started out with in the very beginning? Or is that even still there? I think it, it is still there, especially for me, because at the beginning of this year, what happened was in IBM, we did a shift as part of our go-to-market and as part of that, we created a new organization implementing the garage methodology. We're, our names changed. We, we're now called Client Engineering, but it is very much applying the garage methodology. And this was a new organization from scratch. So we went from you know a handful of people in January to now hundreds across the world. So it was, once again, a startup to apply the garage methodology, and we've adapted it. So... I would say we're constantly adapting for several different things. One is actually technology. Technology changes. Like when Edge came along, what does it mean to apply the garage methodology in that context? We're doing a lot right now around customer care using Watson Assistant. So, you know, different forms of chatbot assistance, those kinds of things. And so we innovate. How do you customize the workshops that we're doing to that? What are the right things to be pairing on? What does it mean to have test automation? for, you know, developing a chatbot. So there's a set of innovation that's going always going on there. The other kind of innovation that I see is what works well and what doesn't. So as we were just t- talking about, you know, virtual, we try out different things to see, you know, this is working well, this isn't working well. Sometimes we have limitations that clients can't access murals. So I think there's a level of, sort of constant innovation there. And on the technical side, like the repeatability, like, oh, we've done this. Somebody else just did it. You know, how do we start to capture that? So there's a level of innovation there. And I think that the other flip side of it is how do we maintain a level of consistency? And, you know, what it's meant to implement the garage methodology and what is itself has evolved a lot from seven years ago. You know, it started out with very specific set of practices that you do, and it has expanded because we tackle a lot more different things. And what we found is you need to adapt. And to me, what's really important is the very core pieces of the methodology, which really focus on how are we going to deliver business value? How are we going to test out ideas? How are we going to have an environment that encourages people to take risk and for people to collaborate and the truly embrace and promote diversity and inclusion and automate everything, you know, truly be agile. What does it mean to be agile? It's not just about, you know, laying out a set of sprints. It's about truly embracing change and all these kinds of things. So there's a core to what we do that is what I spent have spent a lot of time this year 
in kind of sharing and educating, you know, the new team on. And that's true in other parts of IBM as well. And I will tell you that we do training, we do enablement. The number one thing that I personally do is model, you know, is, you know, say, oh, yeah, I don't know the answer to that. Or, oh, we tried that and it didn't really work. Or I tried that, you know, that, you know, is showing that, uh, a- anybody can be trying things and, and that we need to celebrate having tried things. And then also, of course, capturing the things we're doing well, sharing them, et cetera. But, you know, and creating some fun in the environment that we do. You know, I really like to have fun. Yes, don't we all? <laughs> Talking about this, you know, time flies when you're having fun. We're, we're slowly coming to an end here. But you made a comment that, that reminded me of another topic I wanted to bring up here is you mentioned diversity and inclusion. And you've kind of, to me personally, been one of the flag barriers, if you will, of women in technology. So I wonder, and that's both within IBM as well as outside of IBM. I don't know if you want to tell us a bit more about that. Well, thank you. I think I view probably the biggest things that I do in that area is I model behavior. I am passionate about diversity and inclusion, and I try to have that lens in everything I do. So whenever I'm involved with a conference or an event, it's like, okay, how are we on our diversity? Not just women, but other types of diversity as well. I work at an America's level. We're doing a education session tomorrow and I start to look at the presenters. I'm like, wait a second, you know, we need uh, more diversity on roles and we definitely need want to make sure we have some people from Canada and Latin America. So I think there's a level of applying it on a day-to-day basis and then, of course, I, I mentor people of diversity of different kinds and people who are, you know, not not diverse as well. So, I mean, I, I do both because I think that's it's, it's where you find um, people that you connect with and that you feel like you can help. But I definitely make sure that I spend time with women, whether it's on an ongoing basis or more one session, especially around career development, things like that. And I'm raising a daughter who is very strong, a uh, feminist and a strong advocate for social justice. So I'm, I'm paying it forward too. All right. Very cool. And by the way, related to that, you know, we said everything's going virtual. I think there's still this notion of locality, though, in terms of time zones and language, right? I mean, I sometimes feel like now the assumption is now that we're all used to doing WebEx and Zoom meetings, that we can do things across the world. But there's, you know, for us, for example, here in the US, if we work with teams in Asia, that usually means that either they pull a night shift or we do. And that's never easy. Right. And then there's language barriers. And, yes. You know, despite all the the globalization of technology and so forth, I, th- I think those aspects are still there and haven't gone away. I agree. I do think some things virtual open up, again, more options. Like when there is a virtual event occurring, a conference, something like that, it gives more options for people to attend from other geographies who might not get that travel approval, you know, those kinds of things. I think that it's it's a hard balancing act when you work with a worldwide team, supporting that worldwide team and doing what's needed and having boundaries for what's acceptable to you in your life, because it's really important to have some time for life as well as for work. As I know, you're, you're always very good at that. I know you get out, hopefully still get out and play soccer on a regular basis. In fact, I do. I do. 
but it's the whole pandemic thing hasn't made that part easier, of course, right? Um, it requires more explicit paying attention to making sure you maintain that balance. All right. I, I don't want to let you go without asking the final question I always kind of ask my guests is, in your day-to-day work right now, what is it that really excites you at this point in time? What makes it that you can't wait to get out of bed in the morning and get to work? You know, what's a project or something that you're onto right now that you think is really cool? I have to say it's more for me, the people that I work with and uh, the kind of ongoing enablement work that we're always doing. From a customer standpoint, I'm sponsoring a project on trustworthy AI. And I just find that so interesting. It goes back actually to inclusion and, you know, the idea of being able to detect bias to start to correct for bias. I think it's a huge growth area and important area. I think Europe is starting to bring in some requirements around that to ensure explainability and and uh, anti-bias in AI models. So personally, I just find that's a really interesting area. It's not an area that I'm an expert in by any means. So I'm I'm getting to learn. All right. Very cool. Okay, with that, we're we're out of time. Thanks so much for coming. This was a great conversation. I hope we can do it again soon, but maybe not virtual, but over a cup of coffee or a glass of wine or something like that. So let's keep fingers crossed that we can make that happen. But thanks again for coming. That would be great. Thanks for having me, Andre. All right. So with that, we're going to wrap it up. I want to thank you all for listening in and hope to see you all soon. Bye-bye.